Hello, and welcome to the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Porter, and this podcast focuses on America's long-term destiny as a constitutional republic under God. Join us now as we dive deeply into the past, present, and future of the United States of America. The problem, basically, is theological. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Hello, everybody. This is Bruce Porter. We're pioneering the very first episode of the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. Today I have with me my engineer, producer, and son, Jesse Porter, who is co-hosting with me today. And we're going to just kind of wing it on this first episode to give you a kind of an oversight of what this podcast is all about. I felt the need for some time to start a podcast and... I struggled a long time with trying to come up with a title. And when I came up with the Libertatum Chronicles, it actually came out of fascination I had with the Magna Carta Libertatum. Libertatum is the almost never used third word in the Magna Carta. And thought about it a long time, and I finally said, you know, Libertatum means the liberties. And if you are familiar with the Magna Carta, you know that it was one of the first freedom documents, the first time that there was a contract between the lead and the leaders. King John of England, who was a tyrant, was confronted by his own subjects, particularly by the noblemen in his realm, who felt that they were being unfairly taxed. And so they confronted the king and said, basically, we're going to throw you out of office unless you become reasonable. It became the prototype, you might say, or the template that later became our Constitution and Bill of Rights. I actually had the privilege and opportunity last year, almost exactly at this time, when I was in England and in Ireland doing some ministry with our choir fire team, and... I actually had an opportunity to see in Lincolnshire, England, the actual document of the Magna Carta. I think it's one of only seven existing copies left of the Magna Carta. It was a real thrill for me. In any case, that's where the title came from, for better or worse. And I think it conveys something that we really want to uh, convey through this podcast, that liberty not just as a political thing, but as a spiritual concept, is prime importance in our lives. 
And I think our founders in America recognized that when they crafted our beautiful, luscious, delicious, wonderful Constitution and Bill of Rights. So that's where the title came from. And as I say, you can do your own research if you care to. It's uh, readily available on the net. And uh, so there we have it. In this first segment, we thought it would be useful to give you a bit of a introduction into who I am, why I should be doing a podcast, and why it would be perhaps in your interest to subscribe and be a part of this, this adventure that we're on right now. And so in that vein, I want to talk a little bit here in an informal way with Jesse and maybe interview me a bit. Maybe I'll ask him a few questions because he's been out and about quite a bit around the world in different places, uh, sharing the gospel of Christ. And also, uh, he's pretty well informed about contemporary issues and things that are going on. We traveled together some years ago to Russia in the aftermath of the Beslan School Massacre. And, and there have been other things. We've been to Guatemala together. We've done some things in the gospel in various parts of the world. So, Jesse, you've grown into a great man of God in my eyes, and I'm honored and privileged to have you as a part of this. And if you want to just lead out, maybe, and ask some questions, maybe that'll spark some synapses in my brain so that we can get this thing launched. So, why are you recording this podcast? What would you say is is the prime directive of the Libertatum Chronicles podcast? The prime directive is encapsulated in the secondary title of the podcast, Life, Liberty, and History. And when I finished my recent book, Destroying the Shadow Agenda, I was struck by the fact that we can't comprehend or understand where we are unless we know where we've been. And the same is true. We can't really understand America or understand who we are as a people unless we know our history, unless we understand who we were as a people at our founding and maybe even before and how we got to be where we are. And so part of this is really a an adventure and a, a desire to kind of get into the history of America. I'm going to be sharing some of the the audio portions of the book that we recorded. And I'm wanting to convey to you what a beautiful and wonderful country that we are. In spite of our faults and failings down through the years, there have always been people as a part of our country who have made mistakes, done things wrong. But the core values and the core reason why this country was founded still stands as a light to the nations, I'm well convinced. So the purpose of the podcast, the core value, is to encourage people to love America because it is unique among all the nations of the world. We've lived longer under the same document than any other country uh, in the world. I mean, it's an amazing thing that we're still a nation after all of these years. And uh, I think that that says something about the wisdom and the insights that our founding fathers had in spite of all their faults. And uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing phenomenon rare among humans that people can come together and craft something that 
looking back in retrospect, was clearly to me a divine inspiration. The other thing that I wanted to emphasize in the podcast has to do with the spiritual influences that we're all under every day of our lives. And I'm well convinced, and some may feel it's kind of kooky to think this way, but I really believe that we are, every day of our lives, being influenced by unseen forces in the spiritual realm. Uh, That is clearly taught by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he talks about how we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And if we ignore that reality, if we just see politics or we see people around us or the things that are occurring in merely physical terms, we're going to fall really short in our understanding of why these things are happening. So that's the other aspect of this. I want to talk about our history. I want to talk about where we've been. I want to talk about where we are, contemporary issues. And I want to talk about the spiritual forces that move us forward as a people and as individuals. We're going to take a short break now from the interview for a special announcement. We'll be back in just a minute. Want a glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes in world events? Bruce Porter's latest book, Destroying the Shadow Agenda, a Christian Manifesto, pulls back the curtain of history and current affairs, revealing an ancient conspiracy operating in the unseen realm. Learn about the unstoppable divine plan that will completely destroy the shadow agenda. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Check out the link at the end of the podcast to learn how you can secure your copy. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and what sort of uh, expertise or knowledge that you bring to the table when it comes to these historical, spiritual uh, messages that you'd like to talk about. (laughs) Most of our listeners really have no idea who I am or where I'm coming from. I became a Christian back in 1972. I was fresh out of Vietnam. Uh, I had served in the Air Force there, and... For a long, long time, even while I was in Vietnam, I had this sense that God was calling me. Uh, I had a very vague understanding of all that, and I really saw religion at that time as being really a constraining force that held me back from doing what I really wanted to do, which (laughs) was frankly sin. I enjoyed sin. I liked it very much, and I didn't want to stop. Uh, But as time went on, I sensed the drawing of God on my heart and on my mind. And I began to encounter people and circumstances and situations that I couldn't explain naturally, that things were happening in my life that compelled me to acknowledge at least that there was something supernatural in the world, something supernatural was taking place in my life. And my uh, qualifications are basically is experience. For the last 40 to 45 years, I've been a pastor and a teacher. I received most of my training, uh, not in a university or in a seminary, but in a ministry out in California called Gospel Outreach. This was at the midpoint of the Jesus Movement days in America, where 
a great revival had broken out in our country, especially among young people and hippies, of which I was one. And in that environment of intense discipleship, I learned the basics of Christianity. One of the core values that they imparted to me had to do with reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ into the whole world. The gospel of Christ was our prime directive, and that instilled in me a hunger not only to do that, but to learn more, to study, to show myself approved. I sought out a lot of teachers. I had the privilege of traveling to Europe at one point in Switzerland and sit at the feet of a great mind like Francis Schaeffer. And over the years, others that I sat with and listened to and followed their teachings. And it seemed to become to me an obsession because I realized, as Sir Isaac Newton once said, what I know is but a drop. What I don't know is an ocean. And I realized how ignorant I was. And I'm not saying this in any way against people who go to seminary or go to uh, uh, centers of higher learning because there are good ones and bad ones. But I have to say many of the people that I met who were graduates of seminaries were unbelievers. And it was shocking to me that they could know so much theology and history, and yet in their own hearts and in their own lives, it wasn't real to them. And it made me realize that while there are a great many believers who are enriched by those environments, many, many people weren't really receiving that revelation of the reality of God in their life. Anyway, over the years, my wife Claudia and I uh, have ministered in over 40 nations of the world, sharing the gospel, making our mistakes, learning as we went, uh, varieties of means and methods that we use to share the gospel in various countries. I've been in some of those countries as many as 12 times. You know, it leaves an imprint on your soul. And in recent years, and I'm bumping up now against 70 years on the planet, it's hard to believe, I think that I've made enough mistakes that I kind of know what works now and what's real. I think one of the great sadnesses that most older people have is that they wish they could gain back some of their youth knowing what they know now, but that's not an option for us. So you, the listener, will have to make your own decision as to whether or not I'm qualified to say anything into your life. I hope that you'll stick with us and listen to enough episodes to make that determination accurately, but I believe that we have some things to impart, perhaps some insights that will encourage you, help you on your own journey, and to navigate through all of the craziness of this present world. I don't think I have to convince anybody that we're in a time of great craziness right now, but we can do it with a smile on our face and with some joy in our heart, because those of us who know Jesus, and I mean really know him as a born-again converted believer. We can smile at all the craziness of this world, knowing that in the end, all will be made well. All will end well. Like someone said, I read the back of the book and found out we win. And knowing that carries you through a lot of trials and disappointments and things that might ordinarily turn other people away. But for those of us who know that and understand that ultimate victory that God will have over all the kingdoms of this world, 
It gives us that kind of perseverance that we need to continue and to go on and to learn. And if we fall flat on our face, to get up and go for it again. So currently, we are under a stay-at-home order here in the state of Colorado. <laughs> We're hunkered down. <laughs> because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that is circling the globe and affecting many, many people. Not only those who are getting sick, but also everyone else who's not sick and who has a regular job who is now no longer able to go to that job. Um, we have a very volatile political climate. Um, do you want to speak about any of these issues? It's a moving target because the news changes daily. From what we're gathering as we're talking right now... Yeah, by the time this comes out, it's all going to be old news and changed. Exactly. It's all going to be different. From what we're seeing at the present moment, this pandemic, as it's been called, is beginning to look like it's far more overblown than the actual threat that it represents. I'm coming across more and more data from various people who study this stuff that we've been in the midst of a what some people call PSYOP by certain people who seem to want to crash the economy and terrify people so that basically they give up their freedoms and their rights. We're going right? there. We're going there. We appear to be going there. And it's true. We have... Uh, I mean, you and I are going there. <laughs> yeah. Going down that road. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jesse, you, you've been sent home from work. Thankfully, you have a job that's continuing to pay your salary for several weeks. And I'm in a position where I'm working in the medical field uh, to a degree that I'm considered by the authorities as an essential service. So I'm still allowed to travel and go and see people. And, and so I'm uh, in a little bit of a different kind of a situation, which may change, you know, depending. But Millions and millions of people are out of work right now. People in the food industry, restaurants, and uh, uh, everybody from the maids to the maintenance people are being affected by this. You know, the number of people that are filing for uh, unemployment right now. And now we have this passage of a, a spending bill by our government that exceeds well over $2 trillion dollars which, of course, I've never heard anybody say how they imagine that's going to be paid for. But we're in a situation now where we have an election year, and it, it's beginning to look more and more like there are people in the media and in our government on the left who are trying as best they can to make it appear as if President Trump is a bumbler and he's totally blowing this thing. And they're 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 not succeeding at it because it appears now that President Trump has really handled this crisis masterfully. And yet the fear that we're seeing in our people right now, the, the terror that I see in the eyes of people I'm interacting with uh, in my work uh, is palpable. You just, you just can't, you can't get your mind around it. And very often these people are listening to the mainstream media and they're listening to voices that are basically, and I'm well convinced, are deliberately trying to terrify them. And the object is, I think, at this point, is political, to crash the Trump presidency and 
make it impossible for him to be uh, reelected this fall. Uh, we've had previous pandemics of the flu virus that killed thousands and thousands more people. And yet no one ever contemplated shutting down the airline industry or the food industry or uh, making people stay at home, you know, for weeks at a time. We've not seen any of that in previous pandemics that, as I say, killed tens of thousands more people. So how do you perceive that it's been overblown? I think that the news media is largely to blame for this. They have inflated some of the numbers uh, based on really scanty evidence. Uh, the number of people who have died have been reported uh, as COVID-19 patients, but the testing is very scanty right now, so we have no real hard data about how many of those people actually died from this virus. Most of the deaths, at least in the very beginning, were among people who were basically with one foot in the grave in that they were very elderly or frail or they had underlying medical conditions like COPD or diabetes or immune deficiencies that any virus would have pushed them over the edge. So what's the answer? I don't have the answer. I suspect that in the very near future, these reports about how in a larger sense, mild the COVID-19 virus is as a health risk is going to come out. And I think there's going to be a lot of very, very angry people in our country who have lost multiple thousands and thousands of dollars in their lives and in their homes because they were deprived of the ability to work. And not to mention all of the stress and strain that this has caused. I fear... Uh, if I fear anything, and I believe God is in control ultimately, but I'm, I'm uh, concerned that when the truth really comes out, and this may be part of the play on the part of the media and leftist in this country, that this groundswell of reaction could cause violence. The cure has become worse than the disease. Now, again, this is a moving target, and I have to make a disclaimer. You know, I may be wrong about all of this. Maybe we are all about to die. You know, maybe this virus is a sleeper and it's going to awaken, you know, in six months and wipe out half the population. I don't know. But going by what we see right now, the evidence that we have in hand, it appears as if this thing has been really overblown. And it's cost our country untold trillions of dollars in lost revenue, lost trade, businesses that are being destroyed, people's lives being destroyed. And that's going to cause a reaction if it turns out to be far less than they said it is. So how do you feel? Um, there are many, many reports now. Uh, one in particular, I, I have an article here from the Washington Post uh, dated January 29th. The headline is China tried to keep a lid on the coronavirus and put everyone at risk. There was a uh, a study published by the Chinese China Media Project on December 30th. I'm reading verbatim here. This account says the Wuhan Health Commission quote issued an order to hospitals, clinics, and other healthcare units strictly prohibiting the release of any information about treatment of this new disease. 
So what responsibility, if any, would you ascribe to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party? And do you think that when the dust settles, there should be some sort of um, response or questioning? Do you have any opinions on, could this have been an open, raw meat market in Wuhan? However, there are facts that point to a bioweapons lab level four lab within 20 miles of that outbreak and with the Chinese suppressing early reports and actually telling doctors to destroy evidence that this was a highly contagious disease. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, as far back as the 60s and maybe even before when I was in the Air Force in the 70s, we had specific training in something we called NBC. Now, that's not the broadcast company. That's nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. And, of course, we have many, many examples of governments employing chemical warfare against uh, people during World War I uh, in the trenches there in, in uh, Europe, which was a horrendous thing. Why would we imagine that a hostile country would not employ some form of biological warfare against countries that they want to cripple their political system or their economic system. And why would it surprise anybody that China, if they had the opportunity, would introduce a virus that could cripple America's economy and disrupt our political system? So I don't think it's far-fetched or conspiratorial at all to contemplate that that's quite likely what happened. Uh, we don't have all the data yet, so we can't say conclusively, but it seems completely reasonable to me that if I were a Chinese communist and if I wanted to conquer the West, one of the very first things I would do is cut their economic legs out from under them and try to cause as much societal unrest as possible maybe in a ploy that would eventually break out into open warfare. China's got a formidable military that they built up in the last decade or two. Many of their military people have openly said in recent decades that they, they believe it's inevitable that America and China will be in an open war. We pray that doesn't happen, because obviously that's going to be a very bad day for hundreds of millions of people. But you know, it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, this could be a real possibility, but all the, the the data isn't in yet. And when it does, you ask the question, should there be a retaliation uh, against China? There has been some talk about that. President Trump has said that China should repay the United States for this. Now, these are things that we're going to discover, I think, in, in, the, in the future. So as we're sitting here now in lockdown mode, what would you advise that our response should be? What is it? What are things that we can do? What are, what is something that can be done from this position? Well, that's a good question. I think on a personal level and maybe a, a family level, we should use the time that we have to strengthen our relationships with the people that are closest to us. And parents are discovering the benefits of homeschooling which I think is a great idea. Because when you consider the societal brainwashing that is going on in the public school system in America, 
it's a disservice to your children to put them in that environment. You know, maybe some good will come out of that. What else can we do? I think we need to inform ourselves. If you rely on the mainstream media, I don't think you're going to be very well informed. In fact, I think you're going to be indoctrinated. They aren't wrong all the time. It's not all fake news 24-7. They have some accurate reporting in there. But you have to go back to the old saying that even a broken clock is right twice a day. And in between whatever accurate things are being said, there appears to be orchestrated, perhaps even really planned spin in the media that, in the case of the coronavirus, is panicking people. And people can't make rational decisions when they're terrified. In fact, that's one stratagem of war that is thousands of years old. Terrify your enemy. And I suspect that what's going on right now in this fear campaign that we see going on is that people are being terrified into, frankly, stupidity. We're being scared stupid. So what can we do? I think we need to be informed. And there are, thankfully, because of the internet and the availability of alternative news sources that we can hear the whole story. Because I think people, if they're given all the information, will make good decisions. And one thing that we have to remember, and I pound this away in my book, Destroying the Shadow Agenda, the government works for us. We're not their subjects. They are our employees. They're supposed to be doing what we tell them, we the people. They're supposed to obey our instructions that we give them through a free press and through the voting booth. And when they deviate from that, they disqualify themselves from serving. I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up to the fact that these, uh, these people, especially on the left, seem to think that we're all stupid and we don't know what's going on and we're unqualified to decide for ourselves how to spend our money or how to educate our children or what religious beliefs we're supposed to hold. These people seem to think we're all idiots. Every once in a while, we have to remind them that we're not all idiots here. We have our share. But there's also idiots in the halls of Congress. And we have to remember that as people, as human beings, we're all fallen. We're all struggling with a fallen human nature. I'm reminded when sort of, you know, you hear about the panic and the fear in people. I like to, I don't know, I had an experience the other night. I just went outside. It was a clear sky. And I looked at the stars and I just started thinking about how long the stars have been there and how how fragile life is anyway mm -hmm. and how we are literally just a blip, just a vapor. Mm. And I don't know. For me, that's reassuring because it points to something much larger than us here and now. But it also gives meaning to where we are when you think about um, you're alive right now. You're experiencing mm -hmm. this for real. But no matter what happens, the world is still turning. The sun will rise tomorrow. All this will pass eventually. And it really matters how you, how you treat those around you, in your family, um, the steps you take to show love to other people. I mean, we're all social distancing. But I think it's important to, to, to look at the life that's around you and kind of pay attention to those rhythms and, and like figure out how to play your part. I think it's important to not just mm. get too 
barricaded in our minds and, oh, it's all about us. And, but you know, everyone's going through this right now at the same yeah, time. They are. Yeah. All and those. I think it, it's a, it's an opportunity to, to reach out to people in a way that comes from a place of peace because of what we know, because of what we believe. And hopefully by our fruit, show them that, look, it's, it's not, you don't have to freak out about this. You caught the fear. The fear is worse than the disease. Can a man add a day to his life by worrying? We know that's not, that's not true. You, you can't, if, if you're just so lost in your own, uh, paranoia or fear, you can't change any circumstances, but you have a choice to make every day when you wake up. What am I going to, what am I going to feed on? What am I going to listen to? Who am I going to look to for direction? And like you said, if you're just watching the news, turn off the news. Yeah. And take a walk outside, look at the bigger picture, zoom out some. Good advice. And I think we'll be better off for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so this podcast is designed to encourage and to inform and maybe give perspective on a broad range of subjects. And my intention is to use this as a vehicle to uh, promote the things that I think really are core to where we are now as a people. And also, I have this book I wrote that I'm really, really intensely interested in getting into the hands of as many people as possible. But I think it's an important contribution to where we are as a people and the reality of the situation that we're all in. Destroying the shadow agenda is, I think, unique in the sense that I take you, the reader, from where we were in the past, some of my personal experiences as a firefighter, I was in New York City on 9-11. I've been in a lot of different situations. And I think we have some insights that will encourage you. And I mean, embolden you to see that God is in charge ultimately of our lives and that he has a purpose and a plan for everything that's happening. Now, we get to be a part of the drama. We get to get in on reading our lines during the time that we have on the stage of human history. That's a privilege that we're given and a duty. At the end of the podcast today, I'm going to share a portion of the audiobook so that you can hear for yourself some of the things that we're talking about here. And I'd like to encourage you to subscribe and to make this podcast a part of your equipping. Just one more tool in your toolbox that helps you to cope with the time that you live in and maybe be a place where you can come and hear words of encouragement, words that will give you the kind of courage that you need to face the times that you're in and to be fruitful because let's face it, we're only here for a brief time. Uh, when our time is done, the only thing that we're going to ask ourselves is, did I make a difference? Did my life mean something in this world? Was I an agent to bring about greater glory to God and service to my fellow men. Everything else is going to be secondary to that. And now I invite you to enjoy a segment from my book, Destroying the Shadow Agenda. Each week, I'm going to share a portion of the book in course until the entire book is read to you. Special thanks to Jesse Porter for our bumper music from his new release, 
Spinning Reflections. Look for the link in the show notes to grab a copy. Part 1. Rude Awakenings. Chapter 1. Day of Infamy. A date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, U.S. Congress, December the 8th, 1941. A rude awakening can either be a blessing or a curse. The curse kind is like being awakened by someone who snores or by a neighbor's dog barking at odd times in the night. Another example might be when your next-door neighbor decides to mow his lawn at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning while you're trying to sleep in. The blessing variety of rude awakenings isn't always pleasant, but they are necessary. A few examples that come to mind are when your alarm goes off on a weekday and calls you to your duties and responsibilities at work or school. Another blessed kind might come in the form of a negative medical test result after a physical exam that alerts your doctor to an impending health problem in time to make corrections to diet or exercise habits. An extreme example would be a smoke or carbon monoxide alarm that goes off in the middle of the night and startles you awake with a blaring screech. As annoying as that one might be, it is a blessing because it offers a chance to escape a horrible death or injury. You might not enjoy these sorts of awakenings, but you're mighty grateful later because it saved your life or your loved ones. Ironically, at least on a national level, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 just might have been a particular kind of rude awakening in the blessing category. That painful event rudely awakened many of us to the dangers we are facing as a nation, and perhaps in the end, may prove to be an incalculable blessing. For decades, far too many of us have slumbered fat, dumb, and happy in a stupor of indifference while our nation and world burned. Rude awakenings like 9-11 can also serve as a warning that we need to change our ways so that we might avoid impending judgment. The event indeed awakened me, but far too many others have hit the proverbial snooze button and gone back to sleep. This book is but one of a growing number of secondary snooze alarms that are increasing in volume with each passing day. It is high time we rise and meet the ominous challenges now facing us. My Rude Awakening My home is situated nearly 8,000 feet above sea level in the tranquil foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains with pristine snow-capped mountain peaks framed by dark blue high-altitude skies. The fresh alpine air blowing among tall ponderosa, evergreen, and aspen trees refreshes the mind and soul. Deer, elk, mountain lions, and bears wander through our property, and it's easy to imagine on most days that all's right with the world. That perception dissolved on September 11, 2001. That morning, I was taking a leisurely shower after a peaceful night of sleep. I recall humming a tune while enjoying my shower with the smell of scented soap rafting around me. My bliss was rudely interrupted when my wife Claudia burst into our bathroom shouting frantically. I couldn't make out what she was saying at first over the noise of the water, so I yelled back through the shower door, Why are you yelling? What is it? 
She'd been watching the morning news, and I could tell from the tone of her voice that this was serious. Something horrible has happened in New York City, she yelled. They think it might be a terrorist attack. You'll want to see this. Before I could respond, she abruptly spun around and ran back out to the television in our living room, my senses now fully alert. I froze for a moment under the shower stream, my mind racing. Terrorist attacks in the Middle East weren't anything new. But here in America? Turning off the water and jumping out of the shower, I grabbed a towel and dried off as quickly as I could. Without bothering to dress, I threw on a bathrobe and ran into the living room, still dripping water. As I plopped down on the couch, my gaze locked on the televised images of the World Trade Towers in Lower Manhattan, New York City. One of the buildings was belching gigantic plumes of smoke out of an oddly shaped hole about three-quarters of the way up the side of the building. Bright orange flames billowed out near the hole. A reporter was excitedly yelling that just minutes before, what looked like a commercial airliner flew at rooftop level across downtown Manhattan and slammed into the North Tower. The live video feed zoomed in and out on the North Tower. We could clearly see people leaning out of the broken windows just above and below the gaping hole, with choking smoke and flames billowing out behind them. Some of them were frantically waving what looked like sheets or coats, desperately crying out for rescue. I immediately knew help would never arrive in time for these poor souls. As a volunteer firefighter, I did a quick mental calculation as to how hot those flames were, and knew that these people were being roasted alive by the radiated heat. As we continued to watch, the TV cameras suddenly caught the distinct outline of another aircraft approaching at low altitude in the distant background out over the Hudson River. We hardly had time to gasp before the second plane screamed in at high speed and slammed into the South Tower. Instantly, a billowing fireball and aircraft debris erupted out of the north side of the building as the plane disintegrated and its fuel tanks exploded. For several seconds, we just sat there in shock, staring at the television in stunned silence. As I recall, even the news anchor went speechless for several seconds as the shocking scene unfolded before the world. Any lingering doubts I might have harbored about whether or not this was a terrorist attack vanished at that moment. I remember jumping to my feet in shocked bewilderment, shouting to no one in particular, This is a terrorist attack for sure. For the remainder of that day, we remained transfixed in front of the TV as frantic reporters near the scene tried to piece together what was unfolding in real time before the eyes of the world. From the gaping hole high up on the wounded buildings, thousands of pieces of paper injected through the gaping holes in the towers could be seen raining down like slowly falling snow to the streets below. Compounding horror upon horror, we began to see something infinitely more disturbing than paper falling from the towers. Scores of men and women could clearly be seen jumping from blown-out windows as they desperately tried to escape incineration by the searing flames near the holes in the sides of the buildings. Authorities later estimated that over 200 people chose to jump rather than be roasted alive. It is heartbreaking to imagine the terror and desperation these people must have experienced as they leapt out of the shattered windows of the burning building to escape the flames and fell for several agonizing seconds to an instant death. Thinking about it later, 
I wondered what I would have done in that same situation and concluded that I would likely have done the same thing, for it was certainly an instant painless death upon impact. Then, at approximately 7 a.m. Mountain Time, we saw the South Tower suddenly collapse into a billowing cloud of dust and pulverized concrete. Televised images of terrified people running through the streets of New York to escape the scalding hot choking clouds of pulverized concrete and debris billowing out through lower Manhattan's canyon-like streets could never be forgotten. We hardly had time to process these images when 28 minutes later the North Tower also collapsed in a nearly identical way. I recall thinking at the time how odd it was that both towers came down in nearly the same mirror image way, and it seemed utterly incredible that such well-engineered steel structures could collapse so quickly. I dismissed the thought, concentrating rather on the unfolding human tragedy and suffering we were witnessing. Only much later would some rather unsettling questions reemerge about the many strange events surrounding this tragedy and how it could have happened in the first place. As the towers fell in on themselves, a massive cloud of dust and debris blasted through lower Manhattan, blanketing everything in a gray-white powder. Far from being a cool blast of air, however, this pyroclastic cloud was scorching. After I had arrived on scene one week later, I saw scorched cars parked a block away with tires melted or burned to a crisp when their gas tanks exploded. Just across Vesey Street, the plastic coating on a chain-link fence was melted from the intense heat of the blast wave. As the towers fell, a billowing column of smoke and debris shot high into the sky over lower Manhattan and was mercifully blown eastward by the winds toward the ocean. Images of terrified people frantically running ahead of the debris cloud reminded me of an apocalyptic scene from a movie, but this was all too real. Many suffered burns and cuts, their bodies caked with the thick dust that darkened the sky and made breathing nearly impossible. September 11, 2001 was clearly a date that will live in infamy. Ironically, those words were uttered nearly 60 years ago by President Franklin D. Roosevelt on December the 8th, 1941. The President spoke before a special joint session of Congress in response to the attack by the Imperial Japanese Navy on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, just a day before. His words now seem hauntingly prophetic and eerily relevant to what we experienced on 9-11. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. On that particular Sunday in 1941, 
Millions of our parents and grandparents stopped everything and gathered around radios in their kitchens and living rooms to hear the unfolding news of the Pearl Harbor attack. Now, in 2001, millions of Americans sat once again transfixed, this time in front of televisions, in much the same way. Like them, we hung on every scrap of news and struggled desperately to comprehend what was unfolding and what it all might mean. Yet, here again, on our own soil, our nation was under attack. Ironically, the Islamo-terrorists, like the Imperial Japanese 60 years before, overplayed their hand. Instead of intimidating us, a collective emotion of outrage erupted across America and a desire for justice. The Pearl Harbor attack became the catalyst for America's entrance into the war with the Japanese. So too, at least for a time, modern Americans wanted revenge against those who perpetrated the 9-11 attack. Following the Pearl Harbor attack, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, commander of the Japanese Imperial Fleet that carried out the bombing of Pearl Harbor, was portrayed in the award-winning 1970 film Tora 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 as saying, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. I could find no solid historical proof that Admiral Yamamoto spoke these precise words as depicted in the movie. However, I did discover he expressed nearly the same thoughts in a personal correspondence to Ogata Takatora on January 9, 1942. A military man can scarcely pride himself on having smitten a sleeping enemy. It is more a matter of shame, simply for the one smitten. I would rather you made your appraisal after seeing what the enemy does, since it is certain that, angered and outraged, he will soon launch a determined counterattack. Admiral Yamamoto's concerns about the Pearl Harbor attack were not unwarranted. Almost overnight, hundreds of thousands of America's young men and women reported to military recruitment centers across America to volunteer. Munitions factories were rapidly brought online to produce weapons and ammunition. Many car manufacturing plants, with the fresh ink of new Department of Defense contracts hardly dry, rapidly retooled their assembly lines to build tanks and warplanes. My mother worked at a munitions factory in St. Louis, Missouri, and my father and nearly all my uncles volunteered for the Army. After fast-track basic training, they shipped off to the South Pacific to fight. Some conspiracy theories have speculated that key persons within the Roosevelt administration, perhaps even the president himself, knew in advance of Japan's plans to attack Hawaii, but did nothing to prevent it. Although I'm reluctant to accept it, some of the evidence seems compelling. I've often wondered if FDR and others in his cabinet might have speculated that a dramatic attack on U.S. territory would be just what they needed to justify a formal declaration of war. This attack would motivate the American people to confront the imperial Japanese. Military intelligence knew for some time about a growing expansionist Japanese threat. It seems entirely plausible and disturbing. As incredible as this scenario might appear to some, historical experience certainly supports the possibility. 
President Dwight D. Eisenhower was deeply concerned about this very thing. In his military-industrial complex speech, delivered in 1961, Eisenhower warned us all solemnly, In the, the councils, councils of, of government, government we, we must, must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Thank you for joining us today on the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode as we continue to pull back the curtain further on the lies and deceits of the shadow agenda and receive information and encouragement to boldly stand up and make a difference. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a comment by visiting our website www.thelibertatumchronicles.com to find out how you can receive your own copy of The Strength of the Shadow Agenda. Please drop us a like over at our Facebook page, The Libertatum Chronicles. Until the next episode, be strong, courageous, and encouraged.